He is risen. Life has won. And death has lost. Isn't that marvelous? What a story. What a glory. The resurrection of the one who, will, who has will save everyone given him of our Father in heaven. Before the foundation of the world. What a Savior. Dead. Buried. Hopelessly lost were his disciples. And on that resurrection morning, when Mary Magdalene broke the news, the tomb is empty. He is not there. And the apostle says, what do you mean? Lady, you better go back home and drink no more Kool-Aid. Jesus is dead. You, you know he's in the ground. And Mary Magdalene insisted that they go look into the tomb. And when they saw that empty tomb, they were transformed from a hopeless, defeated, disillusioned, saddened, depressed, little band of fledgling disciples into a band of little believing people that numbered less than a hundred and probably a hundred and twenty, twenty-five people. From all the thousands that Jesus fed the loaves and the fishes to, a hundred and twenty were gathered at the upper room. And that was after Jesus had appeared on earth for 40 days. How many were there before Jesus had risen from the dead? Well, in all truth, only those who believed through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus would raise from the dead. You know, the story of the resurrection is a marvelous story because all of time is divided by that event. Even your birthday is A.D. after the death of Christ. I don't think anyone is B.C. before. All the timeline of history by this one seminal event called the resurrection. There is how in the, how do you describe such an event in the English language? 
Now we all know, beloved, that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and his coming back from the dead is the seminal event of human history. There has never been anything to equal it since the creation of the world. And there will be no, no, nothing equal it until he comes in glory to do everything the Bible says he will do. And then the resurrection will be lost amid the wonders that will transform the world that he created in the beginning. You know, I was thinking, I, I believe that I preached my first resurrection sermon in 1958. And I have plowed this field quite a number of times. So many that I've forgotten. But you know the story of the resurrection never grows old. Amen. It lives because he lives. And because he lives, we too can live. Not only in this world, but if we, if Jesus has found you, and I pray God he has, you will live far beyond this world into all eternity. Now can you define the word eternity? I don't know how to define that word. It's, it's just forever and ever and ever and ever. Probably two of the sweetest verses in the Bible were recited by Jesus at the resurrection of Lazarus in John's Gospel, chapter 11, when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Now Martha knew that there would be a resurrection. But she was not ready for what Jesus said in verse 26. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Now, how do you deal with that statement? Jesus said, He that believeth in me shall never die. And that is repeated in the Gospel of John chapter 8. And it's, and it's indicated all over the place. In fact, look at John 5, 24. And what does your Bible say in John 5, 24? Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word 
and believeth on him that sent me. Now watch. Hath everlasting life. Not something you're going to receive as a future gift, but it's a present possession. Your reward for good works is a future attainment. Salvation is a present possession. Let me read that verse again. Let's engage our hearts, minds. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath ever had everlasting life. If you right now are in Christ, you have everlasting life. And shall not come into condemnation. There's no future judgment for sin. And is passed, now listen, from death unto life. So if you're in Christ, you have already received a pass to eternal life. That means when this body is placed in the grave, your soul lives right on and will return with Christ when he sets up his kingdom. The soul is not going to be put in the tomb and go to sleep. Soul sleep is not taught in the Bible. Though some people believe it, that the soul is corporal, material, that it dies when the body dies. That isn't what the Bible says. When Rachel, in hard labor, delivered little Benjamin, Genesis 35, the Bible says, as her soul was departing from her body, Rachel passed away. They buried her under an oak. But they did not bury her soul. Everlasting life is a present possession. Now, folks, we are living in a very precarious world. And our faith, the roots of our faith, need to be deeply buried in the truth of God's Word. When a storm comes, a deeply rooted tree will stand. A house of faith that is resting on shallow sand may be washed away. In the storms of this world, America faces a gigantic storm ahead. The radical left are determined to build a world that you don't want. Neither do I. So our faith is going to be tested. 
Our faith will be tested. Will your anchor hold? The resurrection is the deepest root of a Christian life. It reaches down into the deepest subsoil of faith and truth in God's Word. To think that Jesus rose from the dead is an incredible, an incredible truth. Now we need to straighten out a wrinkle about death. There's a whole world today that believes that people that are on an operating table or in a car accident and they become unconscious that they go to heaven, then they come back, their soul back into their body and so they, they write a book and tell about it. Some of them make a lot of money. I think there's now, folks, listen, I don't want to step on your toes. So I, I don't want to offend you, but if I do, see me right after this lesson, apologize, and I will forgive you. <laughs> but here's the bottom line. The bottom line is that the only person who ever died was dead and buried and buried that came back alive on his own volition was Jesus Christ. No one else ever did it. So there's a difference between resurrection and some be someone being, what do they call it? Revived, there's another word. Resuscitated. There's a great difference. And people that have been revived were not buried in the ground. They did not come back up out of the tomb. Now Lazarus did. He was buried four days. But Lazarus didn't come out of the ground on his own. Somebody raised him from the dead. And it wasn't Lazarus. Jesus raised himself. Of the, and that was the evidence, the certification, the ratification that he was who he said he was, the Son of God. Jesus was God. He's the creator who stepped out of eternity into time to take on the seed of Abraham, to become the Redeemer for those he came to save. That is Jesus. So we know that there's a great difference between just becoming unconscious and losing consciousness for a time. But I promise you, when that person, if they were put in the ground and buried, you would never see them again because they would not come out of that ground. 
when you are dead, buried into the ground and come back, then you can claim rights to a story that you can publish in a book. Until then, you were never dead. You may have been pronounced clinically dead, but you're still alive in some form. Now, this is what the Bible says about Jesus and His resurrection. This is what Jesus said. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself, and I have the power to not only lay it down, I have the power to take it again up from the dead. This commandment I have of my Father, John 10, 17 and 18. On one occasion, Jesus said this, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He didn't say somebody else would. I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Now wait a minute. Forty and six years was this temple in building. They thought he was referring to Herod's temple. But Jesus spake of the temple of his body. You can check that out in John's Gospel. Chapter number 2. And that would be in verses 19 and 21. So, beloved, here's, here's, here's the bottom line about the resurrection. If there is any truth in the Bible that should fire up and give you hope for faith, it's the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus died on the cross. How many days now? How many sermons have we heard on that, on that tragedy of the cross? Think of all the lessons that have been on display in this building in the last couple of days. If there had never been a resurrection, not one of those sermons would be worth a dime. Without the resurrection, the crucifixion is day, a DOA. It means nothing. No one today would believe. It is the resurrection of Christ from the dead that fired. The, it became the catalyst for the birth of Christianity, for the birth of Western Christian civilization. It birthed the family, the church, and all the infrastructure that has made our world the showcase of life for the rest of the world for the last 2,000 years. And we live in a world today where Jesus Christ is being denied 
the Bible is being rejected, the family is being destroyed, the church is withered and dried up, the nation is crumbling because we don't believe in a book called the Bible and in a Savior that rose from the dead. That's the foundation upon which Western Christian cultural civilization has been built, and it's the only foundation upon which our culture and nation, our family structure, our churches, our life is invested in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And it was never more true, truly needed in our world today than in 2022. There's no event in history that has provided the hope, the hope that springs eternal from the resurrection of Christ from the dead. It is the wellspring of life. It is the root, the foundation upon which all hope is built, and from hope, faith is generated. If you believe in the resurrection of the dead, and you have made peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, you've made all things right with God by faith in Christ. Baptism for the remission of those sins as a seal of that living faith, then you have the greatest hope in the whole world today. And you can face whatever the future may bring because you have everlasting life beyond this world. This world's a transitory world. We are strangers and pilgrims in this world. We are citizens of the kingdom. That's where our eternal citizenship is. So why does the resurrection generate hope? For every generation, the resurrection has been the basis for hope. That's where hope lives. That's where faith comes from. Look at Hebrews 11.1 1, and see the connection between hope and faith. So if we're going to be a people of faith, we need to be a people that have hope. And the resurrection gives that hope. Now, I would like for you to think about why the resurrection gives us hope. Now I know everybody here could, could come up with some, probably some better reasons that I will give you, but let me, let me try it. Let me try it. Let me see how we might find 
hope for what lies ahead of us in America from the Bible and the story of the resurrection. You remember the other evening when we were talking about the crucifixion. And we had mentioned that Irenaeus, second century theologian, had said something about the, the Virgin Mary and that Mary was kind of a pro prototype of the Eve back in the Garden of Eden. And Irenaeus thought, that maybe when Mary gave a child who shared 46 chromosomes from heaven, Mary's egg was not used. Jesus didn't have Mary's nature. He had 46 chromosomes given by the Holy Spirit. When Mary was visited by the angel Gabriel, check it out in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 30. When Mary heard the angel Gabriel tell her that she would be the mother of a child that would be planted in her womb, she said, now wait a minute. She answered the angel and said, how shall this be? seeing I know not a man. And the angel answered Mary and said, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now, when Jesus came into the world, he was very God, yet very man. And we have capitalized in the last two days on the idea that Jesus suffered as a man. 100% man. He didn't borrow from his divinity to ease the pain. He bore the sorrow the sadness, the hurt, the temptations that we bear in his manhood. So when Mary stood at the cross and watched the son of her own body that nursed from her own body be crucified, that was Feminine courage for a mother to watch a child she had cradled in her arms, nourished and brought up in her home. And she watched the pain that Jesus went through. That is why Irenaeus said, that Mary gave up the fruit, the divine Son of God, that was the fruit 
that once blossomed from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. So turn there in the book of Genesis for a moment, just for a quick moment, and look at something. You know, Genesis is the root of all truth. You know that. Every grand truth in the Bible begins in the book of Origins, book of Genesis. So let's look at the story of the Garden of Eden for just a little bit. Now this is a phenomenal story. It's one of those limit stories, meaning you just can't write anything like it. Precise, concise. What a marvelous book the Bible is. You can see it's divinely inspired by the truth packed in just a few words on any subject. In Genesis 2, verse 8, the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, planted a garden eastward in Eden. There he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food, the tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. All the pain, all the suffering, all the hospitals, all the mortuaries, all the death in this world today results from somebody eating from the tree of that which God commanded them not to. Amen. Now drop over to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress in it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. The world that God created in the beginning was a perfect world. A world completely unlike the world we live in today. The natural world we live in today has absolutely been changed from that world. There's all kinds of evidence of that. Adam lived to be 930 years. Methuselah lived to be 969 years. You know anybody that ever matched that? How did they live so long? Because it was a different world. There was a canopy over of water that turned the earth much like a, a greenhouse. Tremendous vegetation grew out of that, that earth. It would sustain creatures like you read about in children's books about the dinosaurs. Children are enthralled with dinosaurs. Those monstrous looking creatures of which there is quite a variety of and they've unearthed the fossils of many of them. 
reconstructed them. You, I've, I've actually watched, been to a museum where they actually have done this. So I know, I know what they've done. This is not some conspiratorial idea. When Adam and Eve, in Genesis 3, notice here, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Question mark. Now, a lot of people get hung up on the serpent. Why don't we just let the Bible interpret the Bible and lay human opinion aside? That's all you have to do. Just believe the Bible. Let the Bible interpret the Bible, not your neighbor, not the latest leaflet, of mailbox theology. Read the Bible. Revelation 12, 9, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Revelation 20, verse 2, that old serpent, been around a long time, called the devil and Satan. And the dragon is another name he bears. And Revelation 20, uh, 12, 17 says, The dragon was wroth with the woman. This is not the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus, though the Roman Catholic Church teach that it is. Do you know who the woman is? Of course. It's the plural seed of the woman that is promised in Genesis 3.15 when God said, I will, this is God speaking, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. So that's the first level of enmity. Between the serpent, and the woman. Are we, are we okay? The second level of enmity is when God said, and I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. So there's going to be a cosmic struggle. And that cosmic struggle is because the serpent, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, does not want the lineage through which Christ arrives to survive. So in every generation, there's been an attempt to cut off that seed line. Why did Herod order the death of all the children under two years old? Why did Cain kill Abel to cut off that seed? Now, that, that would be a full sermon, so we're not going to go down that, that trail. But here's what we need to think about, church. And I only suggest this. 
I'm not, I'm not teaching this for doctrine. But in the Eastern Greek Orthodox theology, they see on the cross of Christ, they see in a Roman crucifix the two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They see the horizontal bar as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it was both good and it was evil. Now in the lesson that preceded this one, we did learn, I hope you'll remember, that the serpent that was raised up in the Sinai wilderness by the command of Jehovah himself, he told Moses, make a brazen serpent, put it on a staff, lift it up, and anybody that's been bitten by a poisonous viper by looking into that brazen serpent will be healed. Look at that which terrifies you and you will become brave. Avoid that which terrifies you and you will never grow in faith. You will never come to your own consciousness of sin. You have to look at the cross just like Moses commanded Israel to look at the brazen serpent. Why? To refresh your memory. John 3:14 and as Moses as Moses lifted up the, the serpent in the wilderness. Jesus' words, read it out of your own Bible, John 3, 14. Even as Moses lifted up, the serp, was, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And verse 15, And whosoever believeth on him, Jesus Christ, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Because when you look into the cross, you look at the record of your sin, and you look harder and harder and harder until you see nothing but a black abyss awaiting you for sin. And if you keep, look, if you keep looking at that cross long enough, it will convict you of your sin. It, it will convict you of re, the need of repentance. And in that moment, you will see a light. And it will be the hope of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is what you will see if you look at the cross long enough and see it as a mirror through which you measure all the sin of your life that has been erased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, these theologians that I speak of see the horizontal bar, not asking you to believe it, but in the Greek 
Eastern Orthodox tradition, they see the serpent as both good and evil. Now listen, did not the serpent on the brass pole in the Sinai wilderness, God told Moses, tell the Israelites to look into that brazen serpent and they'll be healed. Look into the cross and you will be healed of the sin debt you owe to a living God. That's where the payment will be made by the one who hung from that cross. So in this sense, the horizontal bar across the crucifix where Jesus hung from, that horizontal bar which represented evil and good, it was evil in the sense that Jesus died as an absolutely innocent man, guilty of nothing, and he suffered the most excruciating pain that words can describe. He suffered. He bled unto death. That was the payment. But because of that suffering, he rose from the dead and a wonderful gift of eternal life rose from that sacrifice. The vertical post of the cross represents the tree of life. Now remember at Mount Calvary there were two thieves. Am I right? One on either side of Jesus. Are you with me? Two thieves. Now there were two thieves in the Garden of Eden. You know that. Two thieves stole the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Who were those two thieves? Come on, help me. There's only, there's only one possibility. It's Adam and Eve. They stole the fruit. And Irenaeus, second century theologian, said that the child born from the womb of the Virgin Mary was the fruit that God Almighty put back on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to the end that the tree of life could blossom, could blossom. Everyone here has read your Bible to some degree. And you know that the tree of life is represented by everlasting life in Jesus Christ. That's what that tree is representative of. When you see the tree of life, it's Jesus Christ who gives life. Now open your Bible to the book of Revelation. Open your book, your Bible to the book of Revelation and notice what the Bible says. In the book of Revelation, 
The Bible says this in chapter number 2. So go to Revelation 2, 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, not what the churches said to the Lone Ranger. The book of Revelation is written to the church, not the Lone Ranger, not someone isolated from and not a part of any church. I know some people will disagree with that. Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So where is the tree of life today? Where is that tree of life? Go back to Genesis 3. Now at the end of the chapter, Genesis 3, this is what God did. In verse 21, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, make coats of skins and clothe them. Did you notice he, he actually took skins from an animal? You can count on it being a clean animal and a sacrificial animal. This is the first sacrificial offering found in Scripture. Now notice, And the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. Now Adam and Eve, after the sin is committed, have a consciousness of evil. Before sin entered into the world, they did not have a consciousness of that sin, of that knowledge. They now have the ability to discern good and evil. And now, watch this carefully, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now here is your Adam, you're standing there. You know now, after having eaten from the forbidden tree, you now yearn to go back and go back to the tree of life in the pre-sinful state that you once lived in. So God knew that Adam, being able to discern good and evil, would want to go back and take hold of the tree of life, the tree that would give him everlasting life, indefinite, everlasting. So he desperately wanted that. Now watch carefully. Therefore the Lord God, now that word Lord is in covenant relationship. It's the Hebrew tetragrammaton in covenant with Adam. Adam was given the Edenic covenant. All of Adam and his posterity. It was not made with the rest of the creation. It was made with Adam and his posterity. 
Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man. God literally had to drive Adam and Eve out of the garden. Well, I don't, I don't blame Adam and Eve. I'd want to stay there too. I'd want to go back and grab a hold of that tree of life. But notice what God told him. He drove out the man placed at the east of, of the Garden of Eden, cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, the Garden of Eden has been described by different Bible commentators, and some of them have, have called it paradise. Now, when you think of the word paradise, you think of, I don't know what you think of, a lovely island somewhere in, under the sun, some Caribbean island, a perfect place, paradise. We read just moments ago from Revelation 2-7 the promise that we would all eat from the tree of life again through Christ our Savior. So the vertical, the vertical piece of wood on the cross represents the tree of life. Now when when Jesus said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whosoever believeth on him should not, shall not perish, but shall have everlasting or eternal life. That could not happen without the resurrection. We sometimes forget that everyone in this world will die unless Christ returns and you would be translated into a glorified body. Do you know anyone that's lived past the death of Methuselah at 969. Is there anyone in your family that just keeps on living century after century? Death is universal. For a universal effect, there has to be a universal cause. Would you say that's true? That cause is sin. When sin entered into the world, far too many professing Christians do not realize the enormity of what sin really meant. St. Paul describes the universality of sin. In one of the most oft-quoted verses in the Bible, and one of the great theologians of history said this, about Romans 5.12. He said, if you ever sit under a preacher and he never quotes Romans 5.12,
then you know he was a false shepherd. So I don't want to be guilty of that. I think I've quoted this verse many times. But let's look at Romans 5.12. Wherefore, Romans 5.12. That word wherefore in the Greek means take notice. Everything that preceded it is leading up to this statement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. That means that death is universal, because Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen or come short of the glory of God. Now that's everyone. That's everyone that is from Adam's posterity is under the bane of death. Death is a grim, a grim reaper. It has no respect for innocent children in or out of the womb. It has no respect for people that live like saints, they still die. There was only one way that death could be conquered. Death was conquered by the only one qualified as a sinless offering at Calvary that would appease the wrath of God upon sin, and that required a perfect sacrifice. Everyone in Adam's posterity is corrupted. There's no offering, even Abel was not perfect. Every one of us, on arrival from the womb, according to the scripture, is dead in trespasses and sins. Open your Bible to Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Praise God, Jesus became that perfect sacrifice to conquer death and hell. The grave and anything else in the possession of Satan. Do you know today, beloved, that's, that Jesus, when he conquered death at the resurrection, not only did he conquer death, but he took possession of all the principalities, all the powers of the demonic forces of this world. So that Jesus could rightly say in Matthew 28, 18, All power is given me in heaven and earth. All power is given in Jesus in heaven and in earth. 
So I want you to turn now, and we'll end this lesson. We're going to turn to the most complete chapter on the resurrection in the Bible. And I'd like for you to read these words with me, if you will. They're very short. We're just going to read a few verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I thank you very much for joining me. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse... We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Together, everyone there? Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. Don't read too fast. Think about it. Which also you have received and wherein you stand. By which also we are saved if we keep in memory what I preached unto you unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, some of this reappears in the creeds. You see how some of this very language is in the creeds. He was buried, he was rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and then he was seen of Cephas, that's the apostle Peter. Then of the twelve, after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, all at the same time, of whom the greater part remain unto this present time, meaning present time, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Now, beloved, think of the evidence for the resurrection. Do you know that historians that write about Alexander the, the Great had to wait several centuries before they found an authentic history of Alexander the Great? Think of all the evidence in any courtroom, anywhere, any place, if you paraded all the witnesses we just read from 1 Corinthians that watched Jesus, talked to Jesus, saw Jesus after he was resurrected from the dead, you could convince anyone in any reasonable courtroom in the world that Jesus rose from the dead. Has anyone ever produced a body? Do you know the evidence for the resurrection of Christ is overwhelming? In a court of law, it would be called evidentiary conclusive evidence. 
And so I encourage all of us to believe and know that the resurrection is the hope that fuels the faith for the unknown days ahead. And we'll end by reading from the end of this chapter. If you will join me in verse number 50. Let's fill the house, last reading of the morning. Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot, cannot, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Translated, if you're alive, it is coming. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast. That's you and I. Unmovable by the radical left. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. God bless you. And I'm going to ask now if the choir will assemble. If the choir will assemble and church.